Now they was nervous, now it's time for me to get nervous. My name is Casey, and I definitely am an alcoholic. There's no doubt in my mind that I'm an alcoholic. As long as it remains that way, I'm not near as likely to take a drink. The old-timers told me when I come into this program, you think sobriety. If you think partying, you're going to get drunk. And I believe that. I really do, because I've seen so many people in the hospitals that they wonder how come their neighbor can drink and they can't. They're still thinking drinking. they got to go back to it. So we must, in this program, if we want to stay sober, start thinking how good it is to have a choice. Something I never had for a lot of years. But I'm grateful for that this morning. I had a choice when I got up whether to come down here or stay in bed. And I never knew so many people got up so early or I'd have probably stayed in bed. (laughs) I, too, want to thank the committee for being down here because it's beautiful to be invited to so many nice people down here. It's beautiful to be invited to lead any AA meeting, but to lead something like this is spatially good, and I like to feel spatially good. I don't know when I took my first drink. I don't know. But if I had had any idea I was going to be up in a group of people like this, I'd have wrote down the date, and so I'd have had it to be able to tell you. (laughs) Old Tom, he was sick. So St. Pete was going to take him up and show him up around heaven. Went up there and went in the room, people doing rosary, and... He said, who are those people? He said, oh, they're a bunch of Catholics. They think they're the only people up here. <laughs> they went out and went into another room and people praying and shouting and going on. He said, who are those people? He said, oh, that's a bunch of Baptists. They think they're the only people up here. <laughs> they walked out of the room and they heard a lot of noise, smoke rolling out from under the door down there, heard people talking, went down and opened the door and people sitting there drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. He said, who are those people? St. Pete said, I don't know, but said, don't worry about them. They're just here one day at a time. <laughs> and that's the way I am. I'm just here one day at a time. I know I started drinking young. I know that. I know I was selling whiskey in the state of Kansas when I was 15. It was a dry state. And a boy there, his family had a lot of money. And I always liked to be around people that had a lot of money. So I started running around with him. Right after that, his father passed away. They had a place of business, had a brand new home in Winfield, Kansas, and I moved right in with him. Now, his mother treated me like a son. I'm so good. About 18 months I was there, and, uh, and she'd give us all the spending money we wanted. Bought us three brand new automobiles, which we wrecked. But she would wake me up in the morning to go get the whiskey for the party that night. We had a party every night. Good-looking girls coming down there. And you know, I thought so much of this lady, I charged her a dollar and a half per pint right down the line for that whiskey. I could buy it for 75 cents because I worked for the bootlegger occasionally, you know. And this is the kind of person I was, and I'd put the extra money right in my pocket. Now, after 18 months or so, they was broke. 
Now, I never like to be around broke people. <laughs> and I moved off. I traveled all over the country. I scuffled around in the pool rooms. And every time I got a hold of a bankroll, it was party, party, party. Because, you see, all I wanted was the pretty girls and the bright lights. I swore that I was going to party till the day I died, and I almost made it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> almost made it. But you see, I always drank that loving whiskey. I never did drink none of that fighting whiskey. People say, where'd you get those scars? They should have put seat belts on bar stools a long time before they put them in automobiles. <laughs> and I traveled around and I drifted into Akron. A lot of years ago, I don't know how many. But over in East Akron there, plant one good year, there was three pool rooms wide open. There was eight liquor joints within two blocks. I said, this has got to be paradise. I went and rented me apartment not knowing a soul. But it wasn't long till I knew them all. Because you see, everywhere I went, I always established credit. And I always did it when I had money in my pocket. Because it made it a lot easier that way. <laughs> and uh, when I'd go get money off them, it wouldn't make no difference. Uh, very seldom I ever promised them what day I'd pay them back on. But if I did, it didn't make no difference. I'd just go to one joint, borrow something, go pay them, and go to another joint, borrow something from my pocket to go out and hustle and scuffle around on. This was nothing. It went on good for a lot of years. No problem. I never had no problem with alcohol at that time. I just loved to party. Liked to party. And this continued on. But you know, I woke up one morning and something happened that shouldn't happen to a good person like me. I owed them all. <laughs> I had a good friend that I played cards with all the time. And he was like a father to me, and believe me, he really was, because after I came into this program, we went out to dinner many and many a time. And he became my bankroll man. He loaned me the money to pay all these people back with, which I did. So he became my bankroll man, and every time I'd go out on a party, I'd never stop till the money was gone. I'd come to him, get money to go out, scuffle around on. But as time went on, I started getting sicker. And he started giving me lectures. Why don't you straighten up? Why don't you go to work? I'd say, Dick, I bet you $20 I don't take a drink for a month. You know, I never did win a bet. Because, you see, if I wasn't drinking, I was always thinking drinking. I was always under the influence of alcohol, whether I was drinking or not. And there at the pool room, you could look out the window, a beer joint on every side of them, and uh, you'll be standing out on the sidewalk doing hot weather. And a good-looking gal would walk by and smile and turn into the beer joint, and I'd just reach my pocket and get 20 and hand it to old Deacon's follow her right in. Didn't have a chance. Didn't have a chance, because I had to drink. And this continued on. Same story, because all I wanted to do was party. I had a chance then, a year or so later, to take the Army and Navy Club over up at Goodyear Boulevard and Market, and I had a card game going on in there 24 hours a day, practically. And the money rolling in, and I'd have to hire somebody to work so I could go out and party. Because, you know, that was all money was good for. And uh, four years I was there, and I drank a lot of whiskey. I'd never had no problems with alcohol up until that time. 
But you know, after four years, for the first time in my life, I couldn't stop drinking. And I had a friend of mine that went through St. Thomas Hospital and came into AA. Him and I did a lot of drinking together, so I said to him, Bill, if I can't stop drinking, I want to go to St. Thomas and get what you got. I didn't want to tell him that I just wanted to go to St. Thomas to get well, because I wanted no part of these people, no part of them. I did go to St. Thomas. It was 1950. Little Sister Nacy was there at that time. The hospital bill, I think, was $71. A lot of difference in it today. <laughs> and the old-timers sort of flocked around you and started trying to talk to you. And I promptly told them I didn't want anything they had to sell, as if they was trying to sell me something. I heard them telling the people to go over there in the chapel, in the balcony of the chapel. You could just walk out of the door of the ward there, and you'd be right practically in the balcony of a beautiful chapel. And you know, I used that chapel more than anybody up there. I used it to hide away from these jokers so they couldn't find me. So you know what I was going to do when I left there, yeah? I went out for 15 years of that control drinking. You ever tried? I went out, but I was never going to get that bad again. I was going to watch myself. I'd go out with a group of people, four or six of us, and I'd count the first three or four drinks, you know, trying to slow down. But after that, you quit counting. And I'd be sick the next day, and I'd have another drunk to shake off, but I wouldn't take that morning drink again because I didn't want to get that bad on alcohol. And this continued on, and I'd never had no serious problems with alcohol. Everything always went along good. I always drank a love and alcohol, no problems. But if you drink as many years as I did, and as long as I did, sooner or later something will happen to you. And it happened to me. I run into this little hillbilly gal, and she liked to drink and party, and I liked to drink and party. She got me drunk, got me married off, and I've never been able to get rid of her since. That's my little wife, Kay. Maybe some of you missed her last night. Will you stand up, dear? I've got a beautiful doll baby out there. But we had some good times drinking because I did slow down on drinking. But as time went on, she could drink more and I could drink less because I was starting a snowball that was starting to roll. And uh, she did all the driving. I didn't do none of it because I would drive an automobile drunk or sober because I knew I was going to get in trouble. I knew I was too bad on alcohol. And uh, we'd lose the automobiles, and she thought I should watch where she parked the automobile. I wouldn't have knew where she parked a freight train, never alone an automobile. <laughs> and this continued on. All these goodies that happens to us out there, the automobile wrecks, the canceling from the insurance companies, all these good things that we cling to and don't want to give up. You know, we want to hold on to these, these dry heaves in the morning. We don't want to get rid of these. No. So they told me in the program, said, you don't have to resent getting rid of them. Said, they'll get rid of you. You will not have no more of them if you stay in here and stay sober. You got rid of them instead of wanting them. And this continued on. And 
We was getting worse on alcohol, and Kay decided she was going to St. Thomas Hospital and get well. She went up there, and uh, I got off the drunk while she was there. St. Thomas Hospital was one-shot deal when I first went into it. She came home, and I'd got off the drunk. I was, well, told me she had to go to AA meetings. I said, sure, I'll go with you. And I did. And you know what I thought going home? That is exactly where she belongs. <laughs> I'd buy her a new car, or she'd have a dent it up in two weeks. I'd threaten to buy her a Jeep or a tank to drive around in. <laughs> I thought I'd done pretty good the ten months she was in the program. I only got drunk four times. But after I come in the program, I look back, every one of them was a month, six weeks long. <laughs> I decided I hadn't done too good. She was sober, and her sister and my brother-in-law came through from Newfoundland. And um, he had me a quart of VO, and they came in quarts, quart for his brother in St. Louis. And uh, he said, let's have a drink. I hadn't had one for three or four days or so. I don't know. I couldn't drink every day anymore. I got too sick. I had to stop. But we did have couple drinks, and that's all that joker wanted. But see, I didn't care because I couldn't drink with people no more. I couldn't get out of the house when I drank. I kept a bottle sitting under the bed to turn it up to try to knock myself out so I could get just a little bit of rest. The last year or so of my drinking, that's the way it was. I don't know how long it took me to drink that quart of whiskey because I couldn't drink much anymore. It would knock me out. But I know they was over to sister-in-laws of mine, and I was out of whiskey, and I was sick. And uh, I looked around and found that other court. And Kay come in and got all over me getting into that whiskey. I said, I want to tell you something. His brother don't know he's got it. He don't need it, and I do need it. And I'll tell you the truth, I did need it. And I uh, kept drinking on that bottle. I don't know how long it took me, but... I know it was gone, and they was gone, and I'm laying there on the bed, bouncing around, just jittery and shaking, and them flies crawling around up there on the ceiling, stomping around with their boots on, raising hell up there. <laughs> and I heard the car drive in. I said, I better be pretty nice to her. She came in. I said, honey, will you go to the whiskey store and get me a fifth of whiskey? I got to get off of this drunk. She said something that you shouldn't say to a person like me in that kind of shape. She said, you don't need no whiskey. You need to pray. You need to ask God for help. I said, I want to tell you something. I don't need you. I don't need God. I don't need nobody. You get me that bottle of whiskey. And she did, and we got off of that drunk. It wasn't long after that till she had to go into the hospital for the two major operations. Twenty-three days in there. She came out, and I was good all the time she was in the hospital. My sister came through from Kansas. She wanted to take him to West Virginia. She did. She proceeded to get drunk, and they called me. And our son and I got a cab from Barbert and went to West Virginia, which was a six-hour drive. The expressway wasn't in at that time. But I wasn't in too good a shape because I took a fifth with me when I went. Now, I don't know whether we left down there that night or the next morning. But I do know that we had a couple fifths of whiskey. And then for the next three weeks, according to what people told us in the newspapers, we laid there in our own home. 
not able to get out. Wake up long enough to take a water glass or two full of whiskey and black right back out. I kept the phone off all the time. I didn't want people to call me. I called people that owned bars. I had a lot of people that owned bars out there that was friends of mine. But if you keep calling them at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to bring you out three or four bottles of whiskey, you're liable to run out of friends. Now, I cannot understand today or back then. It makes no difference how much whiskey you got. You always run out between the time the bar is closed and the bar is open. And you walk that floor and cuss those cigarettes. And that's exactly how it was. Now, our sister was over there. I knew nothing about it. It was a blackout for me. But the phone must have been on the hook because I was up looking for a drink. And the phone rang. And I went to the phone to whoever it was. If it wasn't somebody going to bring me some whiskey, I was going to get rid of him. But it was a guy that was Jim. And he asked me, how is everything, Casey? And I said, my God, Jim, we're dying. Will you help us, please? He said, I'll be right there. Brought one needed, and he came out, and I'm shaking like this, and he handed me out a big water glass full of whiskey. I mean, a... and I knew a drink like that had knocked me loose. And uh, he held it out. I took a second look at it, and he said, "Take, drink it." And I was afraid he's going to take it away from me, so I just up and drank it off. <laughs> he called St. Thomas Hospital, and they started accepting for the second time. And they did accept me at St. Thomas Hospital. And they took Katie Young's down. I don't know much of what went on in St. Thomas Hospital this time. I know people walking through there saying prayer, meetings, meetings, pray. So I had the sister to go to the chapel with me and say a prayer. And I know from that that you got a direct line from the gutter to God in this program. I do know. I know the doctor. He told me, he said, one more day, one more bottle, and you wouldn't have made it. And I could have cared less as sick as I was. Wouldn't have made no difference. But he told me the day before I was to leave that hospital, he said, you look halfway smart now. If you go to drink, said, do it right away. Said Adam's funeral home over here is running a special this month. Four hundred dollars off. Four hundred dollars off on all walk-ins. <laughs> and that was the way I left St. Thomas Hospital to take him out of Youngstown. Now we were sick. We cleaned the house up a little and we laid down. And we got up and we went to a meeting that night and we were sick. I never dreamed, you know, after all these years that I'd be able to stay sober. But I figured that I could stay sober long enough that she could get sober and maybe I'd have to go out there and die. But again, something happened in this program. It's a powerful program. We had a lot of old timers in here. And I feel that the greatest thing we have in this program is examples. And meetings were small at that time. See, like she told you, it was 22 years, the last 25th of September since we came out of St. Thomas Hospital and haven't had a drink of alcohol or anything since. Only by people like you all over the world. Hospitals, I talk in all of them. I love to talk in hospitals. I love to tell them you don't have to die that way if you don't want to. But these old timers, they could see how bad a condition we was in. 
And they told me to get on one little word and work it. A little word of honesty. I said, I'm honest. I pay everybody out there. I said, no, that's not the kind of honesty that we're talking about. Since then, I found out there's three degrees of honesty. There's honesty to the other person. There's a cash register honesty. And then there's the truth. What is alcohol doing to you? This is what he wanted me to take a look at. And I kept taking a look at this, what alcohol was doing to me. And it didn't take me long to realize for the first time after I took a look at me, not knowing I've ever had a problem, always able to see the other person's problem. I could look around any time and say, if I was bad as he was, I'd quit drinking. But now I took a look at me for the first time. And I was able to accept the fact that I was powerless over alcohol. Not that my life become unmanageable. I couldn't do that yet. There's two parts to that first step. And I think a lot of people get in trouble because they don't accept both parts of the first step. But I did accept the powerless. Since then, I found out I'm powerless over a lot of things. I'm powerless over that hillbilly. I can't help anything she does. I'm powerless over other people this program. I can only do what I want to. I'm not responsible for nobody's action but my own. But as I continued to go to AA meetings, and these old-timers kept saying a lot of things, funny things, first things first, let go, let God, easy does it, don't take that first drink. Now, I didn't believe everything they told me, but I went and did it anyway, and I thank God for that today. Because you see, if I'd have tried to make a decision, I'd have made the wrong one. I hadn't made the right decision in a lot of years. Sometimes I think we try to think too quick and we run into trouble. So I'm grateful that I let him do my thinking for me. And I'm a definitely believer that you just keep going to meetings. Just start trying to live a better life. Just trying to do the right thing. God finds you out there. You don't find him. He's not lost. And then I think that the one thing that we must do after we're out there, a period of time, I believe we got to find a home group. Find a group that you can go to and be there regularly and get in there and make that the best group in the world. I belong to the flame group, and I call it the best group in the world. And everybody should think of that of their own home group. It's a lot harder to fall out than it is to fall off. I talk at all the hospitals. I've seen very few people back in pajamas that was real active in a home group. It's important. I don't mean get seven home groups and don't do nothing in any of them. I don't mean that. But this the way it was going with me. There's a couple of black people in the program. It was a lot of help to me. I went to the community center. It was about 50-50, black and white. And two of them are Ed Marcus and Bill Tolliver. All these people I talk about has passed away, but there was a lot of help for me when I come in. And I'd, after the first talk I seen at the community center, Ed took me over there and gave me a 45-minute talk. That really impressed me. He really loved to help people. And he was got sick, and he's laying in city hospital dying. People from the program is going up there, young people, and he's laying there on his deathbed trying to help these people. Tell them that there is a better way to live, that you don't have to die that way. This taught me the program don't only teaches you how to live, it teaches you how to die. We had an old-timer in our area, Norm Young. 
He was about 80% blind. Come off a of skid row. But uh, him and uh, 12 other people took a five-gallon keg of bad alcohol into the jungle, and two of them woke up and they stepped over 11 dead people. Said, let's go get a drink. We're sick. He was a part of example around that program for a lot of years, meetings every night practically. People picked him up and took him to meetings. Here about four years ago, he had about 44 years of sobriety at the time, he got hit by an automobile. And he's laying there on his deathbed praying to God to forgive that drunk that hit him. This program is really powerful. It really is. I talk in all the hospitals, and I love to talk in there. And I like to ask them to do one thing for me when I talk in the hospital. Make me out a list of all the good things that happened to you on your last drunk, and I'll come up and get it to buy. I've never had that list made out yet. You know, this is really the only disease we go out to buy. I've never yet seen anybody walk in the grocery store and say, give me a quart of cancer to go. Never seen that. Uh-uh. We had, uh, you know, I've heard so many times how smart the alcoholic is. Oh, he's the smartest person in the world. I've heard that time and time again. But we had an old timer that was working at St. Thomas when I come in, and he'd been around a long time. And it fits me real good. He said, we're all here because we wasn't all there. And that is really a fitting thing with me. I've done a lot of sponsoring since I've been in the program. I like to sponsor. And there was a gentleman up in Cleveland. He was a millionaire. He owned a steel mill up there. He'd been in hospitals up there. And he was coming down to St. Thomas, and they asked me if I'd work with him. I said, why, sure. He came down, and I went up to see him. The first words this gentleman said to me, said, I'd give $100,000 to learn how to drink social. If he'd have caught me a few years before that, I'd ask for a down payment on that one, I'll tell you that. <laughs> him and I became great friends. I visited him in Cleveland. He had a beautiful home. But what impressed me was the books he had on alcoholism. He had more books than I've ever seen. Here's a gentleman who knew more about alcohol than I did, knew more about AA than I did, but this taught me a good lesson. The knowledge of this program is great, but it's not great enough. We've got to put it in action. We've got to do something. Five different times he came down to Akron and I worked with him. And the last time he was down and the last words he said to me, said, I cannot understand how I could build an empire and can't whip one little old shot of alcohol. Whoever wanted one shot. Went back to Cleveland and died. Along about that time, I'm sponsoring a boy and we're going to AA meetings. And he said, I can't understand those 12 steps and everything they're talking about. said, I've only got a third grade education. I said, can you count to two? He said, sure, I can count to two. That's all it takes. You make friends here, you get their telephone numbers, you call them. Stay in contact with AA every day. Call your sponsor all the time. Nobody will call you a sponsor anymore unless they're drunk. They say, I don't want to bother you, but at 4 o'clock in the morning they're drunk, they don't mind bothering you. 
<laughs> this boy's sober. I told him I've been pallbearers to a lot of people too smart to make this program. I've never seen one too dumb yet. I uh, I know I uh, woke up in St. Thomas Hospital one day and a boy laying there that I sponsored. He had five years of sobriety. He said, I don't know what happened. He said, I was ashamed to call you. He said, I wasn't even thinking drinking. I said, was you thinking not drinking? We must think about how good it is to have a choice. I'm walking down the street of Akron there one day, and a guy staggers out of the bar, and I'd been working with him, and he throwed his arms around me. He said, I can't understand how some of you people can stay sober, and I'm never able to make it. I said, well, not drinking would help a whole lot. But uh, that was a Scotchman, Tommy Davy. He passed away with 35 years of sobriety. Was a lot of help to me in this program. He got a hold of me when I was young in the program. He said, I know you have accepted that first step, the first part. I said, how about the second part? Your life become unmanageable. I said, Tommy, my life's not unmanageable. I get off of that drunk 90 days or so. I got a pocket full of money and everything's going good. I said, what happens then? He said, think about it for a couple of days and I'll be back and talk to you. And then as I took a look at it, I conned myself into a drink again. It's got to be different. My best thinking was what was getting me back in my home for a month at a time, not able to get out. And when he came back, I was able to tell him, yeah, my life was really unmanageable. Then he told me about the second step. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I said, Tommy, I can't do that. He said, all the steps comes in parts. That all you got to do is be willing to believe. So that's all there is on this step. Said, look at it this way. I came. I came too. And then I came to believe. And I've made it simple that way. Just a belief of much as a little mustard seed. Just be willing to believe is all. Since then I've found out that second step is nothing. Only making yourself believe a lie. When you're sober out there, and you decide you're going to drink again, you con yourself in, it's going to be different, and you make yourself believe that, because if you took a look at it, that you was going to wind up in the hospital, you was going to wind up in the penitentiary, you was going to wind up in the morgue, you would not take a drink, but you've got to make yourself believe it's going to be all right. To me, that's the second step. It really is. What is more insanity and making yourself believe that? When you're no different. I used to do that, and then I'd go to the whiskey store and buy two fists. What size drinks was I going to take? And then he told me about the third step. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to care of God as I understood it. I said, I don't understand him, and I don't know whether I can or not. He said, they come in parts. He said, all the steps says I make a decision. And that's true. You make a decision, you start living a better life, and you do not take the third step completely until you hit the eleventh step. He said, you know, I've been sober a lot of years. He said, you know, I keep turning my will and my life over to care of God as I understand him, but said I keep taking it back all the time. 
but said, you know, the more often I turn it over to him, the longer I let him keep it. He said, if you don't believe in it, just put your shoes under the bed tonight, and when you get up in the morning, ask God to help you. He will. And you know, I've got real good on that step since then. Real good. After 22 years, I let him keep it 10 or 12 seconds at a time anymore. <laughs> but the constant trying to work these steps is what's going to keep us sober. It's not how good we get on them or anything like that. The constant trying is what makes them successful. Then he told me the fourth step. He said, you've got to make out a list. Your list will be of defects of character. I said, I didn't have no defects of character. You know, most all of us when we came in didn't. But the old timers pointed them out to me. And one old timer told me about them. And he said, you know, after I was in a while, I found out that they told me I wouldn't be able to get rid of all of them. But I just turned them over to controllable hobbies. We have tools to work with all of them on. We're not going to get rid of them, the resentment. We're going to get resentment. Resentment is refilled. I think that is one of the most powerful ones, angry. Oh, are we angry when we come in? And we've got to write down the reason why we get angry. We've got to write down the reason why we're jealous. It tells us there in a big book, did you, Farmer Brown, pay too much attention to your wife? The resentment, did your boss get a promotion and you didn't? And go on down through there, we got thousands of defects of character. And we make out a long list of these. And then we got to find some good things that happened to us over there. And I had a guy I was working with, he'd been sober two years. Him and his wife, when I went and made a call on him, and he was on the, the fourth step now, he said, I can't find anything good happened to me. When I went there, I had two dirty little children running around, hiding, scared of them. Didn't want to be around daddy or mommy. He'd lost his job, had an old car that wouldn't run. Two years later, he'd got his job back. Had a pretty fair car. And them little kids running around, I love you, daddy. I love you, mommy. We cannot see the good things that's happened to us. So you put down things like that. And why? Because we can find a lot of good things. Myself, personally, I should have been dead a lot of years ago. And then we get this list all together. And we take it to, I prefer to take it to a father or a professional man, whoever you care to. And then I dump off all this garbage onto him. Then I dig me a big hole, and I bury the shovel with it. I don't want to keep digging it up all the time. Oh, I'm going to take a glance at it, a guideline. As the old-timers told me, if you keep digging it up, if you keep thinking about the past, you're going to go back to the past. And I believe that. I really do. That's as far as I'm going to talk on the steps, because I think from there on, we live the steps personally believe after we've been in the program, it is not working the steps, it is living them. But they are beautiful, and the constant trying is what makes them successful. It's not how good you are on them. Really not. I think that I've found a couple of things in this program that gets us drunk more than anything else. That old resentment and self-pity. Oh, man, can we sit around and feel so sorry for ourselves. But I've been in so many hospitals. 
And I've seen people say, I can't understand how my neighbor can drink and don't get no trouble, and I do. I say, you're going to have to get drunk again, because you see, he's got that tape running around in his mind. It's going to be different the next time. This is a great killer. But the one that was got me all the time was was in the Beacon Journal in today's chuckle. Said the greatest salesman in the world. Said a salesman went down here and sold a farmer two milking machines. And the farmer only had one cow and he took the cow for a down payment. <laughs> now he was quite a salesman. But I remembered how I used to come off of one of those drunks, get everything cleaned up, money back in my pocket again, and that old con had come up. It's going to be different the next time. I'm only going to have a couple drinks. I've got to make myself believe that lie, and I do. And I did that time and time and time again, but look what an idiot I had to do it to. We are the quickest forgetters in the world. We can forget how bad it used to be very easily. That is why I like to get up in the morning and I like to think for about 30 seconds how bad it used to be. And I can think of a lot of bad things in that 30 seconds. And then I say a simple little prayer. God help me to be grateful today. And you know, when I leave that house for one day, I know that nothing's going to come up in God and I can't handle for one day. I have yet to see anybody back in pajamas in the hospital that had an honest meditation and asked for help today he took that drink. I think this is one thing that we all got to use in our program if we want to stay sober, because we're not going to forget. And that is our big problem, is forgetting. Another thing that I've seen happen to a lot of people in this program, be a man or be your wife, lady. And you decide you want a date. Don't require a drink to do. And we had a guy named Mose. He was a legend around Akron there. And he told a little story that I think fits in so good with that. An old farmer out there planted some corn. Got up about an inch and a half tall. And the crows is out there pulling that corn up and eating the corn off the roots of it. He went out with his shotgun and started shooting these crows. The rest of them flew away and he went out and would start kicking these dead crows around. Dear lady's wife, Paul Parrott, wings all broke and everything. Oh, what am I going to tell my wife? He picked the parrot up in his hand and started in. Got on the porch and opened the door, and his wife looked down and seen this parrot. Said, what happened? What happened? Before he could say anything, the parrot spoke up and said, wrong crowd, wrong crowd. <laughs> they tell me, going to the bar with your friends and sitting there... You know, enjoying, showing them how brave you are, that you don't have to drink. So that's the same thing as going to the funeral home, sitting there waiting to die. You know. You know, I think we've got to take a little inventory of ourselves every day. We've got to check up on ourselves. Little Johnny went into the drugstore. Asked a druggist, said, can I use your phone? Said, well, sure, you can use my phone. Went back and called a gentleman up. Said, you wouldn't happen to need a little boy to mow your yard, would you? said, no, I've got a little boy to mow my yard. said, well, how's he doing? said, oh, he's doing it. And the druggist said, come here, Johnny. said, if you're looking for a job, you can mow my yard. said, no, I'm not looking for no job. said, that's a guy I work for him. just checking on myself to see how I'm doing. <laughs> and that's what we got to do. We really do. I like what Tolliver used to say all the time. 
We're going to see when we want to see, and we're going to hear when we want to hear. I believe that. So there's a lot of pitchers in this program, but very few catchers. You know, they had a lot of high waters back west. They had a name, guy named John Smith up in the second story window. And the water come up around his neck, and the boat come by and said, come on. He said, no, God will take care of me. The water kept raising up. He got on the roof. The water was up around his neck. And the boat come back by and said, come on, John, I'll take you out of here. He said, no, God will take care of me. He drowned and went to heaven. Went up before God and he said, my name's John Smith. God looked down at him and said, yeah, I know. You're not supposed to be here. I sent two boats by after you. <laughs> I know Kay and I was in Las Vegas several years ago. We had a grandson. He was sober. I mean, he's not sober, but he was about eight, nine years old. And we got a call that he had a big tumor here on him. And we flew back to the specialist. All said it was, he was malignant. Said the whole side was going. I know that in the house. When I kept saying this boy's going to be all right, it's not going to be malignant. There's two. I had an old timer in the program. And uh, I looked up at the clock. You know, it wasn't five minutes till that telephone rang. Said everything's beautiful. Everything's beautiful. The boy's 23, 20 day. No problem with cancer or anything. It was, was not malignant. But you know, prayer without faith is no good. We must have faith. I know I was pallbearer. Was just a short distance from the funeral home in Kenmore to Lockwood Corners. The boy had been sober about four years and he had cancer. And he asked me to be pallbearer. Went over there and it was raining, it was storming, it was dark. I know it did clear up. No way, shape, or form was this going to clear The clouds rolled back, suns, birds come out, start. had graveside service, got back in our cars, it's clouding up and storming again. Coincidence, miracles, Call it whatever you want to. I know what it was. It was God telling these people everything's going to be. I've seen so many of these things. I don't pay no attention to them. I think we got to have a change last night in this program. And I believe that. Like an old farmer, he hitched up his mules and started in the... And they was going to have a dance that night and some youngsters was out celebrating. Got off the wagon. Said, no, I never had time. But I had to work too hard all my boy pulled out his six shooter said, You better do a little dance and so shot the old farmer took a couple steps and the boy said, I said dance. He emptied his gun at his feet and the old farmer took a couple more steps and the gun was empty. So he just reached back in his wagon, pulled out a double barrel shotgun. Cocked both hammers back and pointed at this boy. Said, Did you ever kiss a mule's rear end? Said, No, but I always wanted to. to be able to go out there and do all these things. I didn't want trouble, but I forgot one thing. I had that 12-gauge shotgun pointed on me, that I was never going to be able to do that again. I think the hardest thing for me to get in this program was love. Build a shell up around myself that nobody could get close to me. Yeah, I love my family, but you know, I couldn't show or give love. It takes a long time for that shell to melt down. Kay was coming. And it had melted down some. And a big Saturday meeting at Founders Day, she had Beast to come up. Beast and Ruth. 
He was to talk at Founders Day, and they stayed out their house for two weeks. They had those sharing stations. They went on about 24 hours a day out there. And I'd go on to bed, and I'd get up in the morning, and Beast would be up there prancing around. I'd say, Beast, when do you ever sleep? He said, if I've only got four hours to rest, I ask God for eight, and I always get them. Yeah. It melted me down a lot. The following year, they come up and stayed two more weeks and had those sharing stations out there, and he liked to get new people in the program. He liked to get their anniversary date and write them a letter. He wrote such beautiful letters. You could make a talk off of a letter he'd write. The man was so intelligent with it. And I told him when he was leaving, I said, Beast, you'll never be getting a letter from me. I'd be ashamed to write you one. He said, I know. But said, I'll meet you on my inner island of paradise. Said, I go there at 7 and 11. I go there four times a day. I go there to meet my friends, those that are still here and those that are parted. Thank God I'm able to do those things today. I can be down here and I can be at my home group at 9 o'clock Sunday morning. I can be in Florida and be with my friends here. It's just beautiful to be able to do those things. And these are the things that I learned since I've been in the program. A lot of them takes a long time to overcome them. It really does. I know I was laying in St. Thomas Hospital, heart attack, nine and a half years ago. In August, it was. And there wasn't a thing wrong with me. I, I never missed a meal, but they'd have starved me to death if I'd have stayed there much longer. I got fruit baskets from all over the country, telephone calls from everywhere. And after going out of the unit, I went downstairs in a room with a gentleman down there. I was there a week, and he had one visitor, his attorney, come to see him. I had so many cards that you couldn't believe. You couldn't believe that the love that you receive in this program. It really is the most beautiful thing in the world to be able to do those things. Program has been good to Kay and I. We have our daughter, our son, four grandchildren. They come over to the house. We play cards. We do a lot of things together. I take them to anniversaries once in a while, group anniversaries. They love it. They really do. And it's good to be able to be with your family back again. You know, because when we came into this program, we knew nothing about staying away from that first drink. Absolutely nothing. But sticking around here, watching the examples, which I think is the best thing that we have in this program, is examples. Like one old-timer told me that I followed around. When I came in, he said, in this program, we don't tell you you can't go out and drink. But said, if you'll stick around, you'll see a lot of people try it. said, in 20 years, I've never seen one successful. I can add some 20 more on to that. You're not going to be able to make it. And the examples of people that are staying sober, trying to help people all the time. It is a beautiful program. And I want to close this with a little story. Old Tom was dying. He went up to heaven. And uh, St. Pete was going to show him heaven and hell. Went over to the room. People there at the table, well-dressed, a lot of food on the table. And they're sitting there telling jokes. Said, that's heaven. Said, it can't be. Said, look how happy and everything they are. Said, well, wait a minute. He rang a bell. 
And they started trying to eat, and they got clamps on their arms, and they couldn't bring their arms back this way, and they started screaming and cursing. He said, let's get out of here. He said, I can't stand this. They went over into another room. It looked identical like this. They said, this is heaven. He said, it can't be. It's just like the room we come out of. He said, wait a minute. They rang the bell and they started trying to eat and couldn't, so they just reached across the aisle and started feeding each other like they do here in that age. Thank you all a lot and God bless you all. It's been a pleasure being here.